Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Gina Rippon, Emeritus Professor of Cognitive Neuroimaging at the Aston Brain Center in the UK, using brain imaging techniques to investigate developmental disorders such as autism. She also researches the use of neuroscience to explore social processes such as gender stereotyping. Her work challenges the myth that there is some kind of intrinsic essential difference between male and female brains. She is an outspoken critic of neurotrash, the populist misuse of neuroscience research to misrepresent our understanding of the brain and to prop up outdated stereotypes. Her book on this topic, The Gendered Brain, was published in 2019. It was a Sunday Times and Guardian Book of the Year in 2019. So far, it has been translated into Russian, Spanish, Portuguese, Turkish, Korean, and Chinese. I welcome Gina Rippon to Savage Minds. I'm a huge fan of your work from years, including within the recent and rejuvenated gender debate that seems to be part of uh, structural sexism within our cultures, that somehow women need to be debated every so often. <laughs> Indeed, indeed, yes. Just when they're starting to get above themselves, usually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I would begin with your pronouns, but I have a feeling that maybe <laughs> you don't have any pronouns. <laughs> Look, I'm of a generation where it wasn't an issue, but um, <laughs> I think, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. The interesting thing, both about your work and where it enters into the discussion of the 1990s, neuroscience, sociological, anthropological quest for reasoning behind, you know, was it the gay gene? Why are women women? Are men from Mars and women from Venus? And all those culturally, pseudoscientifically inbuilt structures that we're seeing pronouns as somehow today being a revamping of that in another way. It's just couched as individuality. But what's really struck me about your work when I first read The Gendered Brain is not only, well, the subtitle of the text, The New Neuroscience That Shatters the Myth of the Female Brain, it's that we keep coming upon this debate. Why are our brains up for debate so often? Why is it never couched in terms of what makes men the way they do? Do they have a I don't fold clothes gene? <laughs> well, I think, I think the issue is, is to do with still focusing on sex and or gender, which is a whole other discussion we can presumably have, um, you know, is in some way a prime uh, category. So the first thing you need to know, and this is why I rant on about gender reveal parties, um, <laughs> you know, if somebody's male or female, and you think they, they could actually be much more important, informative, interesting things to know about people. But, you know, we're, we're mired in centuries of, of this being you know, the, the first and most important, and, and in some people's minds, the only um, binary category we needed to use to understand people. Well, there's the Dutch philosopher, Jonas Jaus, who wrote a book called Question Answer, where he says, in fact, this, the question presupposes the answer. Why are we constantly looking at certain readings of culture. I dealt with this earlier this week in an article I wrote, but the same thing goes for racial categories. 
And mm -hmm. Darwin made fun of this. I was speaking with a scientist about this later last year, about this very problem yeah. of our rejuvenation of race and racialism that Darwin disproved long ago. What is it? Is it, is it partly media and our current cultural search for identity where everyone is now using science? Remember before sonograms, when people wouldn't know the sex of their child. So it wasn't that much an issue. Mm. A lot of parents would paint the baby room yellow, if at all. So is there a, a, a will by our society to use science to go back in time to preconceived notions of sex or race, et cetera, et cetera, and stamp that back into our culture? I think the issue about the importance of, of um, knowing the child's sex, actually, I, I think historically and legally, it was very important. Um, certainly with respect to uh, inheritance laws, etc., which is why we have the sex of a child on a birth certificate. Um, you know, it was a legal reason, not a medical reason. Um, so I, I, I think that was really important because the key issue socially was, you know, who was going to carry on the family business, inherit the family estates, um, needed some nice, strong uh, people to... Uh, you know, farm the land or whatever it was. So I, I think that has always been an emphasis on the importance of knowing if somebody was going to be male or female. So, so I think it's re-manifested itself in the 21st century, as I've said, in terms of things like gender reveal parties. Um, and I think it's, it's something, interestingly, if you track the history of toys, Forgive me if I seem to be straying off the path, but um, where sort of in the 1980s, in the second wave of feminism, for example, there was a big push to try and get away from biological determinism, um, from the idea that being male or female meant that you had a whole different portfolio. Men were like this and women were like that. And you had a whole load of different portfolio of skills, which meant you had a different place in, in society. 1980s was a big push against that. And in fact, that manifested itself by the rejection of biological science as, as relevant. Because if you look back over the, the history of this kind of research, women's biology had been what I called weaponized against them. So, you know, bearing in mind, I call the 20th century the sort of raging hormones century. Um, and it reflects that the you know, the inferiority of the brain issues in the 19th century. You know, there's always an idea that that we needed, or society needed to find a way of keeping women in their place, in inverted commas. Um, and uh, in fact, I gave a talk at the Royal Institution some time ago now, which was really saying, if you track the history of this, uh, neuroimaging has now been hijacked, if you like, or was hijacked at the beginning, end of last century, beginning of this century, as the new way of um, weaponizing biology by proving that um, women's brains were different. And because biology has such a powerful explanatory power, um, which, as you said, links again to um, issues of race, um, then using that particular kind of explanation or framing um, your philosophy, if you like, in terms of that explanation, meant that we couldn't do anything about it. Um, that was the implication. This was fixed. It was, um, you know, and in religious terms, of course, and we're still looking at that today with you know, Pope's edicts on 
gender. Um, you know, it was determined by God or eventually by genes, etc. And therefore, we couldn't interfere with it. So if your biological makeup meant that you were inferior, unable to do science, uh, emotionally fragile, etc., then that was the, you know, that was the uh, cards that you'd been dealt. In the 1990s, we saw a plethora of scientists trying to prove differences between men and women. I'm thinking of Steven Pinker, for instance, yep. and, and the then... way his work was received. It was Pinker and Baron Cohn primarily. I mean, these yep. are the two <laughs> people I focus on in my critiques of this. And then you had, well, you, you had uh, from different walks of life, of course, Cordelia Fine and then Spelka who addressed this, and she was in an infamous debate with Pinker not so many years ago over this issue. And she gives concrete examples of what really gives gender imbalance on the faculties of math and science, citing study after study, which demonstrates that from birth, parents' perceptions of their children end up reinforcing certain qualities in boys differently than in girls. Just after birth, she says, parents of boys describe these children as stronger, hardier, bigger, and the parents of girls, despite the fact that there were no difference in weight, strength, or coordination in these newborns, do the opposite. So there's sociological reasons behind this, but can you speak to us about the gendered brain and what your research says about the somatic features of sex difference, or what today people are now conflating with sex gender differences? Okay, well, I mean, in terms of, of the story of looking for differences, what I call the differences agenda, all of the sort of theories about the inferiority or complementarity of uh, the female brain um, was based on uh, theories which evolved before we could actually look at the brain. So, you know, there was um, wonderful descriptions from Gustave Le Bon, et cetera, about the inferiority of, of women, which we, which I have to say, given an earlier comment of yours, Charles Darwin thoroughly agreed, unfortunately. <laughs> so one of the greatest scientists of all time is also a, pretty, uh, firm, a firmly fixed misogynist. Um, but I think once, um, once brain imaging arrived at the end of the 1990s, um, and we could at last look at intact living human brains in inside inside intact living humans that was an opportunity where science could say well let's have a really good look at understanding the brain Let, let's really study the brain um, bearing in mind we're still talking very much about structures we're looking at size of different structures within the brain thickness of the cortex etc um, and, and see if we can get a handle on on characterizing the human brain but the Hunt the Difference agenda was there right from the beginning. Um, one of the notorious papers that is often cited and that I talk about is a, a paper which, in inverted commas, proved that men and women processed language differently. Very small cohort of, of participants. I think there was 19 males, 19 females or something. Four different language tasks. Um, and only one of the tasks actually showed a difference between males and females. And that was that um, the activation patterns indicated more activation in the left hemisphere in males, but activation in both hemispheres in females, but actually only in um, 11 out of 19 of the females. Um, and on the basis of that, 
figure, which is can still be found, um, is still quoted. A whole kind of industry, if you like, of educational policies, parental advice, um, etc., sprung up because it 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 fed into the ideas that already existed. It was nice and sciencey. So there was these amazing images, you know, and discussion about the kind of seductive allure of these images is another whole um, question. Um, people said at last, you know, scientists have caught up with what we already knew. Um, and it also uh, reinforced what experimental psychologists have been saying, because they kind of joined in on the debate as experimental psychology emerged as a, as a science. Um, and so they'd produced a nice go-to list of these reliable differences between males and females, which the neuroimaging work was seeming to confirm. So science at that point was, um, you know, helping kind of confirmation bias. Um, you know, we, we, we believe the evidence which supports what we already believe, as it were. Um, and I think that's one of my concerns that um, we're still looking, I mean, if you look at the neuroimaging literature, there are thousands of papers which talk about sex differences. They've got sex differences in the title, they refer to sex differences they've found in the abstract. Um, and those are the kind of papers that uh, journalists or, um, you know, self-help, you know, public communication of science, people interested in these kind of issues, but not experts, will go to and say, oh gosh, you know, look how many differences there are. And it's not until you really interrogate that data set carefully, you realize that there's no consistency in the differences which are being found. And in fact, just two weeks ago, there was a big survey done on 30 years of brain imaging literature, demonstrating that to date, there have been no consistent differences found in structures, brain structures between males and females. Um, so we're constantly, you know, what I call the kind of whack-a-mole process as a neuroscientist interested in um, accuracy in science, as a feminist interested in social justice, you keep saying, this is, you know, look at the story that science is telling. The story people believe is not the story that science is telling, but science itself uh, contributes to that misunderstanding because of an over-focus on finding differences or a failure to report when they don't find differences because it's not such an interesting story. Um, but the key issue for me is that I think that neuroscience has kind of painted itself into a corner in that we're still looking at sizes and structures. And any yeah. decent neuroscientist should acknowledge that we still don't really know what different sizes and structures mean in terms of different behaviours. Um, so you can measure anything you like in the brain with as many different um, approaches you know, going way back to the kind of 19th century craniology type studies. And you might find differences in a big group. Um, if you look at another group, you might not find the same differences, but we're still focusing on, you know, the size matters issue. And I think um, that's a problem. Uh, and, and, you know, so there is this kind of, because I've written and said, you know, we really do not have found any way of characterizing brains into two types, which is what the issue is. Um, and Daphna Joel in Tel Aviv has, has published several papers, a big one about mosaic brain, where uh, taking over a thousand different brains and examining in detail 
it's more than 100 different structures and pathways within the brain, found that less than 6% of the, the brains could actually be categorized into mainly male type structures or mainly female type structures. And that actually every brain is, is a mosaic of different structures. Every brain is different from every other brain, which is, which is the message I'm constantly trying to push. Because uh, people say, oh, well, so you think male brains are the same as female brains? And I'm saying, actually, no. <laughs> I'm saying every brain is different from every other brain. But those differences don't necessarily uh, emerge from the, their owners being either male or female. And neuroscience is still using the wrong techniques. I mean, I think it's really important that we understand how brains work. Um, and, uh, you know, we need to move away from uh, a, a different kind of phrenology, if you like. It's true that the 19th century was replete with scientists, including people in my field, anthropology. Well, they were <laughs> armchair anthropologists, many of them, but using craniology as a means of determining brain size. Most famously, Cesare Lombroso did this in Italy, comparing the brain size of the more criminal southern Italians. You know, like it paved the way to a new form of racism, even within Italy. And he was uh, much admired by many of the positivists, let's say. I'm curious, from your study and from the debates that we've seen ongoing between people like Pinker or Spelka, that even though the science is clear that brains are different from each other, and I'd say the science even indicates, as you just stated, that we need to veer away from this obsession with size or this obsession on sex, that we need to start looking at other areas that in a way, culturally, sociologically, we're, we're putting the brakes on mm. our own betterment of science in the sense of have scientists had a round table <laughs> saying we need to just stop it, you know, like let's stop looking for the gauging. Let's stop looking for the, we don't really have a, a study saying why do some people wear yellow socks? Because it's that absurd. Like on the one hand, is it important? And on the other, if we have enough data to show that this isn't a determining factor of the human species amongst themselves, then let's change yeah. that chapter. Let's move on. Why do you think structurally, like funding goes around this? We've seen it. I know when I was finishing my PhD and I had to apply for grants to write my dissertation, I knew one thing, Gina. I knew that if I put the word gender in my application, I'd get money. I did and I got money. Now, that's very cynical of me to state, but it was true. And I can't tell you how many of my colleagues were recommended in order to get funding if you mentioned gender, and which is wild because, I mean, I did actually work on the issue of gender. It wasn't that I added it. I did a, a critique of, of Judith Butler and, no, uh, okay. <laughs> you know, uh, something that merited doing at the time. Little did I know her work would explode into something else. I do wonder why, if we know that we've got this tautology, scientifically speaking, where we can't seem to get out of this hamster wheel, <laughs> and we have it in the social sciences, we have it in the humanities, and we know that funding's given, you know, again, gender identity in Victorian literature, you will get funded for that. Given that scientists' work is in looking at data, and they can probably see their own data on even the focus on gender and sex differences, why does this keep returning? Yes, absolutely. Great question. Um, I mean, I think I think there's there's a range of things. First of all, um, there is a big pushback within the scientific community um, against people like myself and Cordelia Fine, you know, uh, 
chewy terms like sex difference deniers and feminazis, etc. Um, and the and the pushback is is couched in terms of the importance of understanding sex differences in the brain. And what is cited is differences in uh, brain-based physical diseases like Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's, um, clear sex differences in the epidemiology of mental health problems like depression and anxiety in females and, and um, suicide, depression and suicide in, in young males, etc. So there is, as I say, within the scientific community, there's a pushback because there is an impression apparently conveyed by myself and Cordelia and people that we're saying you shouldn't do sex differences research or, or this isn't an important question, which is absolutely the opposite of what we're saying. What we're saying is that it's such an important question, you need to get it right. And we're not currently getting it right. So there is that um, tension within science itself. Um, now you you're absolutely right, you know, it would be fantastic if there could be a, a round table. Um, I mean, I have had debates with Simon Baron Cohen, who interestingly is shifting, shifting his stance somewhat on, in inverted commas, essential differences. Um, because he is the person who, you know, coined the term, you know, the female brain is hardwired for empathy, the male brain is hardwired for understanding systems. But then later on said, of course, you don't have to be a man to have a male brain or a woman to have a female brain, at which point you go, <laughs> you know, that feels like a big eureka movement. If that's really what you think, why are you calling it male brain or female brain? Knowing how it feeds into this kind of public consciousness, this need that you expressed very eloquently for some reason to, to prove that men and women not just anatomically are different, but different in terms of what they should expect out of what they can bring to life and what they should expect out of life. And that appears to be a really important certainty that people want to hang on to. Um, and I think that's that's to do with a lot of, well, it, you know, it's the whole history of society, if you like. Um, I find it sad that it plays out within science um, and you think there's a sort of deliberate tone deafness about in some of the scientific community, there is a, a fairly reputable neuroscientist who, um, whenever I've given talks, uh, and you may well, in fact, get an email from him, when I've, I've given talks or being, you know, given airtime about uh, the gendered brain, he will contact the journalist concerned and say they shouldn't be giving people like me airtime and will attach, you know, half a dozen copies of his own papers. Um, so even a little local journalist in a newspaper reporting a science festival event um, has been treated in this way. Um, so it's clearly important to him. Um, but I think in general, uh, you know, when you see how the media deals with sex difference, reporting of sex differences, it's always at last the truth or proof at last. So there seems to be a really fundamental need to hang on to this certainty and to kind of cherry pick science that supports it and to undermine the science that doesn't. Well, I've noticed that Science Magazine will run pieces that to the outsider look like, well, it's in science, it was published that brains are gendered and a lot of outside readers don't understand that this is an editorial. 
and it, it, as, it, very recently they've done this as well, which I find a bit annoying because I think editorials are fine if they, again, are based on facts. There's a lot of cherry picking around this issue more than any other subject I've seen. Yeah. And it, it, it's not surprising to me because it also is part of the tautology as to why it rears its ugly head every so often. We have to always somehow justify why we can think, read, and walk, I guess. And it's, it, it comes down to that to me in the sense, because I'm not surprised that I may or may not get an email from this individual because I, I get emails around issues that touch women's lives quite frequently. People are very comfortable in these old world stereotypes. I think there's a lot to say for a psychoanalytic study on this on a mass level in the future. I'd love to see it. Could it be that you point this out too, as in, and so do other scientists, that there's sexism within science, okay? And maybe part of it yeah. is so unconscious that there is a desire to go back to the older ways of doing things. They're more comfortable. There's a quote from an American journalist that says, people love change as long as they don't have to do anything to make it happen. <laughs> I'm thinking, yes, you know, that maybe yep. that even within the scientific community and certainly within the social science community, there's been a lot of pushback against any kind of theories that might shake up things. I'm thinking of James Clifford with an anthropology or Vincent Crepanzano when their work suggested that the anthropologist is never objective. They, there's always subjectivity. And, and somehow that shocked anthropologists of the 70s and 80s, but it, it's not that shocking. We know that by being present in a conversation, our two cents are going to have some kind of su subjectivity to it. But we come back always, Gina, to nature versus nurture. I know that your work and others as well have, including Daphne Jules, has spoken to the idea of brain plasticity. And of course, many of our listeners might know of the infamous London taxi driver study, which looked at structural MRIs and saw that in control subjects who did not drive taxis, as opposed to the licensed London taxi drivers that have to remember, memorize for their test. Oh my gosh, I should know this. When I was living in London, I would obsessively talk to them about this. I think they have to remember 50,000 streets, if I'm not mistaken. I hope I'm not lying. It's the 20,000 routes within six miles of Charing Cross, actually. <laughs> That's it. Oh, you're good. Okay, great. 20,000 routes. See, I did lie. Yeah, yeah. And so they looked at these structural MRIs, saw a more anterior hippocampal region that was larger in the control subjects than in the taxi drivers. So they read this as hippocampal volume correlated with the amount of time spent as a driver, positively in the posterior and negatively in the anterior hippocampus. So this would suggest brain plasticity, according to many. Can you talk about the nature versus nurture issue and how this affects not just London cab drivers, but how this might affect the whole idea of, quote unquote, being a woman. Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm glad you raised the nature versus nurture issue, because in fact, one of the key messages in my book I was hoping to get across, that we need to get away from the idea of it being either nature or nurture. And actually, the two are so entangled um, which, although I didn't come up with a title, is why the book is called Gendered Brain. Um, and that brings us into the whole issue of what we mean when we say sex and what we mean when we say gender, which is probably something that we should discuss. 
but I think, um, do, do you know the work of Anne Fausto oh, Sterling? Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> of course, right, okay. Well, I mean, she's, you know, my hero. Um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, she, she takes a systems biology approach um, and says, you know, biology is, um, you know, infinitely flexible, responsive, to outside influences and the changes that are then wrought in biology will in themselves then uh, loop back into how whatever that biology is interacts with, with the outside world. So that's that's really what the story is that we need to get away from that aspect of understanding the brain because again it comes back to this idea that People like to think that, you know, a brain developed along fixed pathways, which you know, is, again, with all of these debates, you know, there's an element of truth. It's not that one side is absolutely wrong or one side is absolutely right. So the brain, obviously, there is a genotype which determines how the brain develops and the brain develops along the same pathways in typically developing children all over the world. Um, and the same skills emerge in the same order. Um, uh, in, in normal circumstances, etc. So there is a kind of biological script playing out. But if that's all it was, there was an end point to this biological script when your brain stopped growing, um, you know, the relevant pathways, structures were fixed. Um, and that was the brain that was going to give you the skills um, or lack of them, um, which carry you through the rest of your life. The importance of neuroplasticity is that this is not just characteristic of the developing brain, um, you know, up to say the you know, first six, seven, eight, nine years of life, um, but is actually something which we find uh, throughout life, which is why the taxi driver studies are important. And interestingly, with the taxi driver studies, they also followed up the taxi drivers when they retired and they showed that that difference disappeared. So, that's a really nice index, if you like, of how our brain is constantly um, reacting, changed by our own circumstances. And of course, that's really important to understand because of all of the issues and that the, the, the TED talk I'd mentioned was really about that, to say what's new in 21st century neuroscience and which we should be incorporating into debates about male and female brains um, is that our brains um, constantly interact with the outside world. Uh, they're generally, you know, they're gathering rules of social engagement as well as sensory understanding from the outside world. Uh, they're plastic um, and they will change according to the um, experiences they have, or they won't change according to the experiences they don't have, which of course is another issue. Um, and also they will, they're permeable. You know, the attitudes in which the problems that brains um, the context of the, in which the problems that brains are solving um, are, are presented will change how the brains solve that problem. And I think that's really important, again, because it brings us right into the world of stereotypes. Um, you know, so if a girl is told, you know, you, you have problems with these, girl, people like you in inverted commas, have problems with these kind of tasks, but I'm just interested to see what your brain will do, then you will get a different pattern of activity then if you're told the same task is actually a task that people like you are good at. So all of those issues are really an indication of how entangled our biology is with what's going on in the outside world, which has hitherto really been ignored 
in trying to understand where brain differences come from, irrespective of whether we're talking about sex differences. I mean, my main area of research is into autism. Um, and so it's key to understanding how brains get to be different. Um, and therefore, you know, that's an important understanding. But I think that's, you know, that, 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 that's something, um, that's what, you know, that's what the book is about. Is, is it, there is a new way of looking at this debate. It's important that we understand it, most particularly because it makes us look at our world and say, are we limiting the potential of ourselves? by sticking to this pretty prescriptive way of rearing individuals, if you like. So there's a great paper by uh, Cordelia Fine and John Dupre and Daphne Joel, which is talking about, you know, rethinking the kind of evolutionary arguments and saying maybe yeah. what we're looking at is, and it's what I referred to at the end of the book when I talk about the straitjacketing the brain. Our brains are infinitely flexible but our culture is is terribly prescribed. So maybe, you know, if we unprescribed our culture, um, we, you know, we could really um, unleash fantastic potential. Well, that's something that comes to mind when I look at the gender wars current the last 10 years, that we see a push, especially among adolescents, to have an identity. And of course, adolescents mirror each other and it becomes explosive in, in its contagion-like effect, when in fact, prior to this nomenclature of gender identity, you, I, everyone, we, we've all had to push back on gender stereotypes. I'm evaluating this from an anthropological perspective, but I look culturally at what's happening. I'm thinking, okay, failing economy since the late 90s, used to going to university, learning a lot of theories that they can't use in the real world because there are no jobs. So they're sort of bootstrapping a bit of empowerment together that coupled with neoliberalism, market capitalism, what have you. And here we are with a load of people having or claiming to have a gender identity and claiming that there is a gendered brain. It's a bit different than what you look at in your book in the sense of there are people making the claim that they really do have a lady brain, as the feminists yeah. would say. <laughs> now, can you speak about this? Because I'll tell you something. I got involved in this quite by accident nine years ago. In fact, I was pregnant. What really shocked me about the gender debates, even to this day, is this. I can see the sexism within the debate. It's like, wait a sec, <laughs> all my life I've had to fight back against, you know, you shouldn't do that, girls don't do that. I don't want to be told that in what would have been in the 18th century, the noble savage kind of positive racism. I don't want to hear, but I have great qualities that even men want to emulate. That's not an improvement yeah. if you catch my drift. No, I do. I mean, I think that's I've just recently been or in, in the process of writing something about this whole issue about female leadership. Um, and in fact, I, we're going to call it, I think, the female brain is dead, long live the female brain, because it's a re-emergence in what looks like a positive context of people saying, isn't it wonderful how the countries that handled the pandemic best, the countries with women leaders, and they're starting to talk about women having particular leadership qualities, uh, etc. And that makes me, you know, seems people might say paradoxically uneasy, 
because it buys back into the idea that there is some kind of sex determined differentiation possible between members of the human race. Um, so it brings back the kind of othering agenda where, you know, women are like this and men are like that. And in general, the women are like this um, uh, catalogue has, has been a, a list of kind of negative qualities. So we should be saying, you know, hurrah, at least people are thinking positively about women. But, but that, the science doesn't support, uh, either in terms of brain or behavior, doesn't support this kind of binary approach. So I think that's, that's an issue. The issue of gender identity, I think is, is really interesting in terms of this debate, because there didn't used to be a term for gender. Sex was applied to everything. If you look at the chain of argument, right, from what is it that determines male and female anatomy, which we didn't know back in the 18th century. It was applied to their brains, it was applied to their behavior, it was applied to their roles. So, I mean, there are still journals called sex roles. So sex, you know, everything was linked to this biology. In the 1980s, as I mentioned earlier, this is when you started to get the pushback and people were saying, we should be talking about gender, gender as a construct. Um, and the idea still was that this was a construct, but it was linked to biology. So, you know, sex equaled gender. Um, and you were either male or female, masculine or feminine. And I think what's interesting is the unraveling of the kind of whole issue of a binary gender identity, A, which is B, linked irrevocably to your biology. Um, and I think that that is an important debate, which could have both positive and negative consequences for the, the kind of issues that I'm pushing for. Um, but it is certainly the case, and I have said in, a, in other fora, that um, one of the characterizations of transgender individuals, particularly those who wish to medically transition, is their belief that they have a female brain in a male body. And I have actually been approached by um, people wishing to transition, saying, could I image their brain to prove this so they could justify this decision? which is you know, the point at which I say, but there's no such thing as a female brain. There isn't a template where I can say, take a brain image of you and say, yes, look, this person has a female brain because there is no such thing as a female brain, which is unpopular, as you can imagine. Um, but I also think it's very retrograde because you know, why, why are we shackling ourselves, if you like, to a, a, not an accident of biology, but a, you know, a, a, a fact of biology which determines our particular role in the reproductive process, but which doesn't need to determine anything else with respect to who we feel we are, what we want to do, who we want to associate ourselves with, etc. Um, so I, I find that a, a real conundrum. But I think the idea of lots and lots of different identity, gender identities is, is an interesting way of seeing if we can loosen the grip uh, on of the idea of sex equals gender. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. I'm not really being a devil's advocate here, but I'll just say that what if this is just personality in the same way that I remember in the 90s, 
when there was a push for acceptance of gay people and lesbian people in the US where I was living in New York, the narrative went something like this. We can't help it. Um, we're born this way. So you had the debate of born this way versus it was a nature versus nurture thing as well. And I think that what many feminists and I have referred to as well, because it's quite a powerful organization at this point, the transgender lobby has hooked their wagon onto this trolley in a way of getting public support for their quote unquote identity. The problem I have is this. Mm. We know that there are real men and women. We know that prior to the 1990s, gender tended to mean masculine, feminine, not men, women, because at the time people could still say, what's your sex? And people weren't being prudish about the word thinking sexual intercourse, for instance. Now it seems that gender has been used to get around any kind of prudery at the same time as, and this might have been its originating role in the US where people won't want to say that word in certain circles in front of children, etc. Then you have the idea that, well, gender used to mean masculine and feminine. So am I less of a woman? when I am hammering a nail into the wall? Am I, I mean, this is ridiculous to me. So the very stereotypes that the transgender communities thinks that they are fighting, they end up going retrograde and emulating the very things that we have all had to fight against as women. Yes, I mean, I, 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 think, that's, um, I, I think that's a great way of characterizing it. And I think the issue um, with respect to gender, and, and again, you know, if, if I mean, it sounds like you would know more about the kind of linguistic aspect of this than me, that, that gender is now used in the same way that sex was. Um, I mean, there was an interesting, it was two years ago now, there was the, the um, <laughs> oddly enough, uh, the English A-level examination system, um, you know, they set the question centrally, etc. And there was an outcry because the biology, one of the biology exams asked children to answer the question, how do chromosomes determine gender? Um, and people said, you know, there was people saying um, chromosomes don't determine gender, they determine sex. But the, the question was allowed to stand because they said, well, children wouldn't understand um, what you meant if you said sex, that, you know, because the term gender has become, well, not interchangeable, it's replaced that term. And I think it, it could be to do with what you mentioned about not using the word sex because it had different connotations. But I think now sometimes um, uh, people use the term as a kind of, uh, not dis, well, I'll say disguise. I mean, I'm not sure it's the right word, but it, to, to imply that they acknowledge that um, individuals are more than just their genes and genitals, if you like, um, that, that they also have different experiences, different roles in society, even though they don't actually take those into account. So they use the term gender and I'm seeing that in science. And one of the things I've commented on is that increasingly you're getting people talking about gender differences in the brain. And of course, you know, we talk about gender pay gaps or gender reveal parties, which of course, aren't gender reveal parties, they're sex reveal parties, um, but that has a different kind of connotation. Um, and I think that's, that's the term gender has 
is used as an umbrella category, but it isn't always, uh, people don't always use it in, this, in the correct way to say this person has had different educational experiences, has a different occupation, whatever. They're just using it as a, you know, okay, this is a, a 21st century woke in inverted commas way of talking about differences between males and females, but I am still talking about differences between males and females. Um, so I think, I think that the, the kind of terminology in the debate um, interestingly characterizes the, the sort of different um, philosophies, if you like. Um, and it, it again, it, the, the whole issue of gender identity and the use of the term gender, I think, is, is relevant to that. We are also seeing, though, that people, aside from claiming that their brain is different, they make arguments about being exposed to testosterone in the womb, etc. None of which is proven. I think medically, ethically speaking, it would be impossible to prove some of their theories. What shocks me about the whole debate, and it, I go through phases of just not being able to hear about it, honestly, because I get <laughs> as a... And it's not just because I'm a woman, you know, a lot of feminists have said, you know, I first became piqued over this issue and, and it generally had to do with feminist interpretations of the hokum being espoused. I think for me, it came down to a basic, wait a second, <laughs> if I were to submit a paper saying the world was flat and these are my reasons and I give nonsensical references in a peer-reviewed publication, I think my paper would be rejected. Yet we have many publications giving rise to specialist publications based on an identity that has no basis in science. I think that there's been a lot of buttressing of narratives that have more to do with personality than actual science. And science is being used as a cudgel to shut up any opposition, mm -hmm. hence the editorials that will come out in peer-reviewed, reputed science publications. And then that goes along with some of the more questionable, like Sage Publications did a whole series on gender with, I mean, I was mentioned in it. The word turf comes to being mentioned in association oh, with women's names. Yes. And I wrote the journal and I said, first of all, this article is written by someone who has cyber stalked me for close to a decade. That aside, this is not a scientific paper. This is based in nothing other than ad hominem and cooked up pseudoscience. There is no science to transgender identity. I mean, we see the word identity, that should say it all, right? It's not like, would you be doing brain imaging of Canadian brains or mine? Because I'm yeah. bi-national, you know? So you could see which part of my brain was American and which part <laughs> you'd see, there's a gun on the left side and <laughs> there's the maple syrup on the right. And it's gotten to be so ridiculous that the obsession over men having scientists, hence the people who ask you to image their brains, this idea that there is a truth. How is it then, Gina, that the media is reporting on gendered brains as if this were a fact? Over and over, we're seeing this. We see it even in not just specialist publications in the sciences, but we're seeing this in then the major media that publishes on what a specialist publication published, right? So today there was an article in science that said that men's brains or that transgender female brains, and this gets recycled. So it seems yes. like the science is never clear because 
media is one of those too many cooks in the kitchen, if you catch my drift. Yeah, I think the, there is an, uh, um, yeah, I mean, that, that characterizes the problem really well. And it's a bit like, you know, to get back to the kind of basic, why is it, why is it so hard to shift this belief? Um, you know, apart from the fact that it's been around for a long time, um, it, it, it's it, people have a need for this kind of belief, um, and they they can, as as you clearly know, get very angry if you challenge that. I mean, there's a great phrase. Um, I think it's something along the lines of, "If you've lived a life of privilege, then equality can feel like oppression." And I think there's this idea, anxiety in you know society as as currently constructed, bearing in mind that we have been talking pretty firmly in a kind of Western, educated, industrialized, et cetera, uh, terms. Um, I mean, you know, there are other cultures who have you know, more than two words for gender, uh, et cetera. Um, so I think I think that should acknowledge that. But I I, I think there is. Um, it's, I mean, well, it's a search for understanding oneself and the human condition is is perfectly understandable. Um, and it's what a lot of science is about. It's, it's about explaining, not necessarily discovering things, which is part of, of science, but it's also saying, you know, this is, this is what the world is like. Why is it like that? Possibly with, with the suggestion that could we do something about it? You know, if we're studying diseases, why, you know, why do people have these kind of diseases and could we cure them is, is great. But it's also kind of more general. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, that's why there is an interest. And there is sometimes a disconnect between what scientists are saying. Um, and they could be being very careful about what they say. But I think in some cases, they're less than careful. Um, so I think what happens is you get the, the an earnest scientist who is interested quite possibly in um, looking at the reasons for sex differences in the development of cancer cells. And so they may do a, a really well-controlled study on cancer cells in mice, for example, and, and demonstrate the susceptibility of cells to different hormone levels, for example, which are you can, I mean, and I have done this, you can track, um, you know, that gets published in a serious um, science journal. And it then now we've got, um, I'm not quite sure, this sort of online harvesting <laughs> processes, which kind of look for interesting articles in science journals, and you get a kind of almost like a blog or a, a Google alert or something, uh, where there's a kind of surface summary of what's been found and then maybe a journalist is looking to write about something and does a quick um, online search and comes across this summary and you know each time it gets communicated it loses a bit or it gets a bit simplified even to the extent where you lose the fact that the research was done on mice um, and so eventually it emerges as you know science has proved that um, estrogen causes cancer kind of thing um, and and I think that's a big issue but because it's an area that everybody's interested in because you know as I say uh, if you flatteringly large audience I'll say I know you're only here because you've all got brains and you've all got a gender of some kind and that's why it's interesting 
And I think that's why um, this particular area of debate and, and science communication um, is as popular as it is, because it concerns the whole world. Um, you know, not somebody who's interested in particle physics or string theory or something. Um, so, so I think it's it's an area which needs to be looked at very carefully. And, and in fact, it's, it's another area I'm looking at is about this whole communication issue. Scientists should be careful if they do, you know, 100,000 different comparisons and 63 come out significant. Don't just focus on those 63. Acknowledge that of all the other comparisons, they weren't significant. So you're not finding um, broad brush differences between whatever it was you're looking at, in this case, obviously males versus females. Um, because otherwise the general impression that people who are less experienced than you uh, will get is that science is, is fundamentally supporting this idea of difference. Um, and we need to get away from it because I think it is constraining um, you know, the potential for males and females, uh, you know, in, in terms of what they can and can't do, but also the pathological consequences. Because if you look at mental health issues, then clearly you could say whatever it is we're encouraging our boys and girls to do isn't serving all of them well. Yes, and the question begets the answers. I do worry that we've gotten ourselves into this rinse and repeat cycle such that it has definitely affected the psychology of all of us. I mean, I am sick of it. I'm sick of having to hear about the, the female brain because a guy who likes to wear Laura Ashley says, but I feel feminine inside, I'm very emotional. Of course, the logical <laughs> answer to that is, well, of course, men can cry. And I think back to your reference in, I believe it was your TED talk, where you refer to the men are from Mars, women are from Venus type of pop psychology books. This is a huge rewash of neoliberalism. And I have to say that given what we know about the types of people who identify as transgender to include now the 4,000% increase amongst adolescent females, many of whom a huge amount autistic, we know that we are pathologizing not only cultural normativity in a sense, but personality. So my question as someone who, like my first child died, and when the coroner gave me the slides, they, they took slides of his liver, of his heart tissue, of his lung tissue, of his brain. And they said, well, you know, it was categorized as cot death. And they said, well, there's a lot we don't know about cot death. And I said, so what you're saying is this is just a word, a category to say we don't know effectively. And th that's what it is. Of course, cot death means other things. And I did a lot of reading about it. I went to the Welcome Collection and was there daily for months at a time, reading about the way that childhood death was medicalized, understood. And I have to say it helped me a lot as well, because it was so common. There were parents who lost every single one of their seven or 12 children. You know, this is, again, why people had so many children. It's not because they were lazy farmhands and just like to have sex all the time, which is one of the <laughs> stereotypes given about Indeed. certain peoples. But we did not live as long as we do today. So I do take issue with the way in which sexism has been so lazily 
codified into pseudoscience, unthinkingly repeated by mass media, and then grants given by scientific funding agencies and organizations that might ought to have the burden of responsibility to give at least funding to both sides of the debate. It's no surprise that the people fighting this happen to be female scientists. Meanwhile, in pop culture, Gina, we're vagina havers, we're uterus havers, we're chest feeders. You've read all that nonsense. <laughs> Cancer Research UK is telling people, many of whom are immigrant women, barely speaking English, if they're a cervix haver, to have it tested. Like, talk about losing your audience. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Gosh. Uh, yeah, I'm really sorry to hear about your experience. And, and um, that, that must have been must have been hard and interesting that um, information helped you. It's exactly the kind of thing I have done. You know, let's go and find out the facts. Well, yes, because, you know, at the end of the day, people die, as we've seen this past 15 months. Right. Yeah, there indeed. is a fear that has made governments locked down when if I were in Boris's seat, I would have definitely made different choices, beginning with shutting down airports. But hey, I'm not elected. And I think that decisions about science come from emotional spaces. Again, as we've seen this past year, would Boris's decisions have been different had he not had COVID? Mm, probably. But neither here nor there. I do see that the way scientists are addressing the gender issue or what's now called the gender binary or now the fact that in media we're seeing biologically assigned female at birth female like the redundancy of how just to say woman is is astounding Doesn't. to me <laughs> how many times do we have to say just a simple term yes and i do worry that instead of looking for let's say causes to cut death causes for meningitis for Oh, goodness knows, might it be useful that, that funding in the sciences go towards diphtheria or cholera or malaria? We're not seeing a lot of advancement in the way we ask the question. And I'm speaking of you personally, but it's just when I read Baron Cohn's work on the subject and Pinker's, all I could think was, are these the people that got behind, well, Pinker got behind then president of Harvard, Lawrence Summer, for suggesting that yeah. women's legging progress in the sciences might be due to the innate differences between the sexes. So the irony yeah, is yeah. this, the transgender lobby says for many years, born in the wrong body, then they didn't like that characterization. They said, well, that's a transphobic thing to say. Yeah, yeah, but what they yeah. did is they cleverly dismissed the body held on to the brain, because that's the one thing that only very few people can look at, such as yourself. I don't have an MRI in my home. I'm not trained to read the results of resonance scanning. But if you hold on to the science that is the least expansive and, and cemented in a sense, we don't have a lot of answers in neurology. We have a lot of questions. We do have answers, but not as many as in other fields of science. So it seems to be the great escape card. I'm not born in the wrong body, but I do have a female brain. Yet the Guardian and Independent, for instance, tell me that there's a female brain. The New York Times tells me there's a female brain. So when I'm making biscuits, am I making biscuits from the female brain side? You see, <laughs> like it's so absurd to me. So I get very frustrated because I was in the US Army. 
I had a great experience the summer of 1985. I went to Fort Benning, Georgia to jump out of airplanes. And I was surrounded by hundreds of men. In my stick, it's the airborne school term for squad, there was another woman, a nurse from Michigan, Karen Majeski. And we were put into the front lean and rest position for push-ups one day, as we did every day. And the sergeant was yelling out commands, you know, one, two, three, you're not signing off and all those cadences they give. Then he came up to us with his megaphone and yelled, you should have stayed home and baked them cookies. So we started laughing at this point. And then he made us do more push-ups. We had to do like another 50 to 100. The funny thing about this experience is that as sadistic as it sounds, it was quite in retrospect funny. And he was actually at the end of the three weeks of training, quite a nice person. His job was to do that, not necessarily the sexism. But the funny thing is that there I was in a place that I had to pass the U.S. Army male category for PT, physical training tests, with another woman. And we were both, she was like five foot five, I'm five foot seven. And we were having to come up against all these stereotypes, but excel despite our bodily functions at something that was very much about the physical capacity to excel and not break your legs when you jump out of an airplane the third week. I'm just so shocked that in 2021, we're seeing instead of women falling under horses for the right to vote, we're seeing women being dehumanized by agencies, by the capture within medical institutions to say pregnant person, all because a lobby wants to put the brain as female and say, we have a female brain. So how can this finally be put to rest? Lombroso <laughs> wasn't very successful when it came to criminalizing the minds of Southern Italians. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, again, we could come back to something I mentioned earlier, whereas neuroscience, if they have a, um, a wish to solve this problem, which may be another issue, um, needs to think about characterizing brains differently. Um, I, I think focusing on MRIs uh, is is not helpful. Um, I I would I mean and maybe I would say this, wouldn't I? Because my research is much more to do with um, the kind of millisecond changes associated with different um, processes. Uh, I think we've got a much better way of of characterizing the brain. Um, and we can harness, for example, machine learning, looking for patterns, um, start to actually, you know, science seems to be the answer, um, which for me would make perfect sense. <laughs> um, and say, right, you know, almost like thinking about brains in terms of fingerprints uh, or genotypes or, or whatever. Um, and say, once we can say everybody has a different brain, and we need to understand this for all sorts of reasons, for personalized medicine, um, you know, for, for, for a whole range of different reasons. And stop thinking, you know, just thinking in terms of two categories, which historically, if you really look at it, it has not proved useful. Um, but again, you're coming against people, you know, religious beliefs, um, still firmly established you don't have to look very far from mainstream neuroscience to find educational. Um, I came across something recently. Uh, it was about teacher training, talking about um, boys and girls brains being different and boys learning this way and girls learning that way, referring to right brained ways of thinking. 
And you just think, why, you know, neuroscience, mainstream neuroscience has dismissed that for 30, 40 years. And yet that is still being used to train the people who are dealing, you know, who are responsible for the brains. And so there's, you know, us busy working in our labs, but there's the teachers, the parents, the the individuals themselves, because the self-stereotyping is something which really, really concerns me. Um, And, you know, who are still getting this age old incorrect messages, which is proving really difficult to shift. you know, and I think I think Stefan Joel who's used the example about how we used to think about left and right handedness. Um, you know, left handedness was pathologized, uh, you know, to the extent where I mean, I have a twin brother who is left handed, profoundly left handed. And yet when we were in school, um, in primary school together, um, it, you know, he, he was hit over the left hand if he used it for writing. So, you know, within my lifetime, which is longer than some but um you know there was still a a belief in the pathology of being left-handed we don't find that now um you know so if we could tap into what it was that got people to give up this ridiculous notion which was founded in science you know because scientists did say you know oh you know being left-handed means this that and the other and it's caused by this that and the other and it's linked to this pathology that's all gone now so if we could find a way of harnessing that process into um, looking at sex differences in the brain maybe we could start to solve the problem there are a lot of givens around how science is formed although i think the left hand dangers also form part in the middle ages even back to the church strangely enough Um, i wonder if it might also have to do with the way that when we get new technologies and gadgets, someone should do a study on this. If male scientists like the gadgets and women scientists like Spilka observing children prefer the observance. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting in terms of uh, just yesterday, in fact, was at a, 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 a new launch of a kind of new group, which is looking at bias in artificial intelligence. Um, and th- my input was artificial intelligence, um, the development of artificial intelligence offers us an amazing opportunity to break the cycle of gender stereotyping. But it also offers us a worrying um, possibility that it will just magnify the issue of gender stereotyping. Um, Because, you know, if you've got biased data sets, biased beliefs, you've got... um, a workforce where less than 20%, I think it's something like 17% of the professionals are female, um, you've got a real danger that will go back to, um, well, artificial intelligence shows this uh, or builds in gender stereotyping into how it deals, um, you know, how it offers solutions to problems um, in the future. So I, I think that's, that's, that's a big issue. Um, and it's it, it for me. I mean, I, I got into this really because I was despairing of you know going into schools and seeing the advice that girls were being given and the beliefs that children had about themselves. I mean, the, the, was involved in a BBC program four or five years ago now called No More Boys and Girls, which was looking at gender stereotyping in primary schools and worked with a, a class of seven-year-olds. Um, and what was worrying was not only the evidence of unconscious stereotyping in, in, in the curriculum, how children were spoken to, 
the exercises they got involved in, you know, the very infrastructure of the classroom, you know, a pink cupboard for the girls' coats and a blue cupboard for the boys' coats, etc. But also in in the group of seven-year-olds, um, you know, in their own self-stereotyping, you know, girls had very profound beliefs in what they couldn't do, and boys had very uh, fixed understandings of what they could do um, and what they shouldn't do. You know, you didn't want. They only had one word for how they felt, and that was angry. Um, and you know, so so that it was that kind of concern. You know, what are we doing to the next generation? Um, which got me involved. We see this again with cancer research. I have yet to see any charity in the UK, any NGO internationally, refer to men as penis havers or prostate havers. The the selection of who we focus on is yeah. part of the problem. And yeah. it's similar to the way in which many criticisms coming from social scientists are saying, why? I mean, I interviewed Glenn Lowry about BLM in the States, and he said, why do we keep returning to slavery? Like, there's this kind of knee-jerk, let's start the conversation always on a certain discourse. When it comes to African-Americans, somehow it has to go back to that. And you could sense the frustration. Thomas Chatterton Williams similarly talks about the invention of race. And he says, I'm stopping identifying as Black from now on, because this is part of the problem. The fact that we always have to identify as or start the discussion with race or with sex. And that means that subconsciously, it's always going to be the nugget of any investigation. For instance, Arabic has masculine and feminine. It also has two plurals. I'd love to see brain imaging done about the impact of the plural that's not just two or three or more, right? So there's two types of plurals. Uh, I mean, I'm being somewhat facetious here, but we don't look at that anomaly and how that kind of language structure might affect the brain. Instead, we want to know and drum it out of us or into us that we are really different. The unconscious bias within studies that even seemingly might wish to liberate, but here we are in the rinse and repeat hamster wheel. There's so much about how we are framed linguistically, ontologically within philosophy and history, that maybe one of the best ways to get away from this, as you say, is we change the way we do the studies, but we also start to ask completely different questions. For instance, in the London taxi driver study, we saw brain plasticity. I think that would apply to both males and females alike. So wouldn't it be interesting to see a study of if men can learn to fold laundry? We're not seeing many NGOs or charities across the world refer to men as penis havers or <laughs> prostate havers. Yeah. They're simply not. So the sexism is clear from the get-go. Yeah. Yet that is accepted even by very well-reputed scientific publications. Yes, I mean, I think that that seems to be the issue. And, and um, in so much research or so many policy discussions, it's the only question asked. I mean, even in, you know, well-meaning diversity and inclusion, um, which almost by definition <laughs> says that we need to categorise people. Um, and if we haven't got enough for one particular category, we need more of them. Um, 
and so that's how we get into this double bind i think is 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 what i'm talking about it's an important category we, there are physical differences i mean people like caroline criado perez drawing attention to the fact bizarrely um that lots of um science lots of design you know design of the environment ignores females completely and adopts males as the default um, and the same in, in science research you know us science research now um, mandates that you have to take sex differences into account in developing drugs or or whatever it is you're doing because for so long they've been ignored so there's one part of the world which is being taken to task for ignoring women and another part of the world which is being taken to task for uh, spending too much time focusing on the differences um but also has a, a, a value um a, it's a value judgment as well so not only are men different from women but women are different in inferior uh, less useful ways um so so i think that's why it's so hard because it is such a conundrum um you know sex differences are important but not across the board and i think that's that's where the issue needs to be resolved in your field, are there people working on other issues around neuro neurology and how the brain has reacted to lockdown, for instance? Because one thing I've noticed, Gina, and it's horrible for me because I mentioned my son's death and what happened in the follow up to that for me personally was I had amnesia. So I'm very sensitive about memory loss. And that's something that I experienced under lockdown, not a memory loss in the same sense. I lost track of time regarding memory. Like, yeah. did I do something two days ago or did I do it last year? Yeah, I think I think that's it was certainly I mean, and it has I have to say, you know, that, that actually in cognitive neuroscience, in, in a way, I characterize it myself. I don't absolutely do research into sex differences because I don't think a there are any interesting sex differences in the fields that I'm interested in. Um, although have, that having been said, I think the um, um, uh, area of autism is an interesting case study of, of the debate um, but perhaps that's a, a separate issue um but i think yes i mean there are people researching that and there are people who don't research sex differences precisely because they think they haven't got anything interesting to tell us uh but you know that that message isn't the one that's publicly received or you know which is funded etc um so i i think that's a big dilemma uh, i mean people talk to me about neutral parenting or you know the way forward and my answer is i think so that we aim for not gender neutral important but i think with respect to the wider issues about how we resolve this conundrum it's to move away from gender as an interesting or an informative category altogether so people talk about gender neutral parenting and i say i think the best thing is for it to be gender irrelevant so that it doesn't matter um whether somebody's male or female uh, what we there are other ways of finding more interest about more interesting things about people and neuroscience could contribute to that a lot of women and feminists and not feminists are saying we're human like treat us like human this is it if we can start to look at the human brain across other parameters it might evoke more interesting findings and it might also allow for people to see that yeah. 
we are not just a sex. I think that that's it, that the more we focus on sex, the more there's this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy that seems to explode because as much as the human race, if we can say so, has made progress, advancements in potable water, in vaccines, in health and sanitation, you name it, that nut we never crack is, are women human? I struggle with this a lot. That's why I don't cover the gender debate as much as many people would like me to, because I find it frustrating. I think, wait, like our first guest on the show was Noam Chomsky. And I asked him about this debate. (laughs) And I'm paraphrasing her. He finds this to be in a way a derail to the more important questions of the day, which I cannot help but agree with him. But on the other hand, we are 51% of the population. So it's not like a fringe issue either. So I think, how can we <laughs> use that went science? Down well. <laughs> well, he did actually, because he didn't deny that there's a problem. But I think that there is a problem when we have a huge push by the left. This is the shocking thing for me because I'm on the political left most definitively. We have a left that is very happy to embrace regressive sexist norms, where I talk to men on the right. In fact, I've had to publish on the right because the left won't touch this with a barge pole on this issue. And I find that men on the right recognize this as hokum. So it's a very interesting political divide as well. On the other hand, before I had children, I was one of those people who was like, there are no differences in sex. Then I had kids one each. <laughs> and uh, yes, there, there yep, are. Yep, yep. And as much as I hate to say, it pains me to say it. <laughs> but does my saying it mean that sexism doesn't exist? Of course not. Yeah. Yeah, I think the issue is, um, I mean, and again, one of the reasons I focused a lot on the early years in the book, was that people say these must be real differences, because they emerge very early. They're true across the world. They've been true down the centuries. So you're wrong if you think they don't exist. And I'm saying, yes, they do exist, but where do they come from? You know, babies are tuned to be, you know, they they arrive in this world with very finely tuned social radar. They arrive into a hugely gendered world. So of course they grow up differently. Um, But that's not because, you know, there's some kind of genetic message in there. Well, there is a genetic message in there. I mean, the, the way I characterize it is I think maybe in the TED talk was, you know, there is a biological script, but it's playing out in a social stage. And we need to realize that that social stage has a much more profound impact on how the biological script plays out than we ever realized. And until we can acknowledge that, then we're in big trouble.